Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Carl Rollison, author of the book, The Life of William Faulkner, Volume 2, This Alarming Paradox, 1935 to 1962. Carl, welcome back to the New Books Network. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Mark. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back. Now, we had you uh, on previously to talk about the first volume of your biography of William Faulkner. I was wondering if you could perhaps, though, for people who may have missed that, uh, uh, elaborate a bit upon, uh, you know, who you are and what led you to write a biography of William Faulkner. Sure. Okay. Uh, Well, I've been for my professional career a uh, literary scholar, uh, a university professor uh, with a strong interest uh, in not only biography, but uh, in particular uh, besides literary figures, the sort of the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, I've done uh, books about uh, biographies of Marilyn Monroe and uh, Dana Andrews, a big star of the 1940s, <clears throat> and a wonderful character actor, perhaps Hollywood's greatest character actor, Walter Brennan. And one of the things that uh, interested me in doing this two-volume biography of Faulkner is I was sort of coming full circle in my career. I had begun as a graduate student at the University of Toronto doing a study of Faulkner's uses of the past in his novels. That was way back in the, in the uh, 1970s. Uh, and I, th- I wanted to come back to it after all this experience doing other figures like Lillian Hellman, who had also spent a lot of time as a screenwriter in Hollywood. I'd made all these connections and thinking about popular culture and the way writers fit into it. And in looking at the Faulkner biographies, uh, I felt not enough attention had been paid to that, mainly, I think, because the literary scholars pretty much took Faulkner at his word, which was, oh, I went to Hollywood to make money and I didn't really like it and I couldn't wait to get home. All of that is true. It's just that that wasn't the whole story. I was sure that wasn't the whole story, that someone as observant uh, and perceptive as William Faulkner got more out of Hollywood than, than he was uh, that he said in his interviews, and he even said about his interviews they're 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 unreliable. You never know what I'm going to say because uh, he didn't particularly like the interview process. Anyway, so that's that's what got me started, and what got me through Volume One was talking about his certainly his great works, The Sound and the Fury, for example, in Light in August and Sanctuary, and As I Lay Dying. But then coming toward uh, 1932, he gets his first contract at MGM uh, and writes a series of treatments which don't get produced, but he makes a vital contact with the director, Howard Hawks, one of the great Hollywood directors, who, who for in, in, to Faulkner's great fortune, Hawks was a Faulkner reader. He had read Faulkner's first novel, Soldier's Pay, about World War I, and he was eager to work with Faulkner, and they produced a film which eventually was entitled Today We Live, 
Uh, and then in the mid 1930s, uh, also uh, a film about World War One, The Road to Glory, <coughs> and their collaboration lasted for more than 20 years. And that's part of what takes me into volume two. Yeah, I was thinking as you're describing it, how those elements that you talk about are right there at the front of the book when you uh, begin with 1935 and, and Faulkner in Hollywood. It's also uh, interesting, though, that you make that uh, observation about how so many writers have have dis, uh, biographers have di- have been dismissive of Faulkner's time in Hollywood because, as you explained, it's so important to him emotionally in terms of the people he's meeting and, and of course the affairs that he's having and what uh, and, and I'm thinking in particular here of your uh, description of his long affair with Meta Carpenter. I was wondering if you could perhaps yeah. explain her, uh, a bit about her and and her relationship with Faulkner during this period. Yes, he meets her in late 1935. He's walking into Howard Hawks' office. She was doing all sorts of things for Howard Hawks. She was a, a secretary, all that, although she was much more than that. She was really a continuity person. That is, she was on the movie set, and she was often the one that would point out to the director there was always a continuity person uh, to say, oh, well, you know, the character walks in the scene with one kind of... Uh, wearing certain clothes and comes out wearing another clothes, you, you've got to match, got to match the shot, that sort of thing. So she was meticulous and uh, she was given the task of sort of keeping Faulkner on track. He would dictate screenplays to her. The marvelous thing for him was she was from Mississippi. She talked like he did. She, she grew up not that far really from, from where he was. And in fact, she had seen him long before he became a famous writer on a visit to Oxford, Mississippi, where he lived. Uh, nevertheless, uh, he was a married man, and at first she was, she was sort of put off. He wasn't the kind of man who would just uh, make advances to a woman. He was very courtly and, and would begin with a lot of flattery and a lot of southernisms and I declare and so on. Uh, but he eventually broke down her resistance. Uh, especially when she found what a serious man he was. And and this is where we get into, again, what screenwriting meant. Uh, She could see how seriously he took the writing. This was work for hire, as writers would say. You know, you write something and you get paid, and, and that's the end of it. You don't own any rights to it. It's not yours in that sense. And yet when he would write about characters, and she would, his handwriting was often hard to figure out, he would just say, well, you know, what are you saying here? And you say, I'm not saying it. The character is saying it, which is what he would also say about his novels when he was interviewed. So she provided great insight uh, and at the same time, emotional sustenance for this man who was far away from home and felt very out of place in Hollywood. Uh, she, uh, even though he wasn't a, a particularly sociable person, she did introduce him to composers. And here's where it really gets interesting, because a lot of these artists and composers were, were refugees from Europe. Faulkner was meeting, you know, all kinds of people, uh, important writers and, and uh, artists of other kinds that, that certainly had a, an impact. And you see it in the later 1940s and 50s in his, his fiction. And without that experience in Hollywood, certainly he would have been a different kind of writer. It's one of the things I, 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 you make that point very clearly uh, throughout the book, which is that as Faulkner's uh, fame grows, and as you explained during this period, while he is a, a very well-respected writer, he is getting his contracts with Hollywood, he still isn't quite the 
literary success in terms of profitability. Uh, you, it, I was especially fascinated by one of the recurring themes in the book is how Random House basically is keeping him going financially uh, and, and supporting him, even though he, his sales don't necessarily justify it during this period. But you, as you described, he, he these these contacts and, and, and as his fame grows, it changes his perspective in ways that you describe, you know, set up some interesting tensions when you get to uh, the 1950s, especially. But during this period, it's really about that sense of, of all these writers he's with basically saying, him, what's your stand on fascism? What, what position do you take on fascism? And as you explain, that has an impact on his work. It does uh, in a number of different ways. Again, there's this collaboration. Uh, it especially comes in the 1940s with Howard Hawks. Meta Carpenter is, again, the script supervisor. Uh, they used to call them script girls. Now that sounds very demeaning. What she really did is she supervised the script, and that was the title she was later given. Uh, for instance, on the set of To Have and Have Not, uh, he's the one who, um, uh, they were going to set it in Cuba, and Fokker says, no, you know, uh, that won't work uh, Hawks is told because of the good neighbor policy, Roosevelt doesn't want to offend anybody in South America, and that's that's when they when they shifted uh, to the Caribbean, and, and partly at Faulkner's suggestion. At any rate, what he's writing there about, and to have and have not, uh, with with Bogart on set, and what they would often do is they'd go on the set, Faulkner would write something, and and Bogart would turn to Faulkner and say, Bill, you expect me to say all that? <laughs> you could write rather long, involved dialogue in a novel. And Faulkner, that's the other great thing about Faulkner, is uh, he, 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 could, he could be a made-to-order cook. Uh, he was also an excellent carpenter. And so when someone said something to him like that, this doesn't work, he didn't get huffy. That's what Fitzgerald would say, well, who are you think you're talking to? Faulkner was just the opposite. Well, let's fix this. Faulkner even said at one point, the best films I made were the ones where they threw out the script and improvised. <laughs> that sounds like Faulkner had nothing to do with it, but in fact, he's the launching pad. So what he does in, in um, uh, To Have and Have Not, to make a long story short, is there's a character that another writer, Jules Firthman, had developed. He's only got a few sentences in Hemingway's novel, To Have and Have Not. It's supposed to be an adaptation, but they essentially throw out Hemingway's novel, except for the main character, Harry, that Bogart plays. And Firthman, uh, he develops this dynamic between uh, Bogart and his sidekick, who's Walter Brennan in the movie, uh, Eddie. Uh, and, but in Firthman's script, uh, the Bogart character is kind of rough. He kind of pushes Eddie around, and you don't really understand, well, why does he need Eddie at all? Well, Faulkner completely turns that around. And, and he shows how Eddie, even though Eddie's a rummy, that is a drunkard, is the one who looks out, is almost like uh, Bogart's conscience in the picture. And at one point, this fascistic customer on the fishing boat says to Bogart, you know, why do you keep this guy aboard? Why do you keep Eddie aboard? And Bogart says, because he thinks he's taking care of me. And there's a real truth to that. Now, where this gets to the fascism part of it is, what is fascism about? It's about the strong and the weak. If you're a fascist, the whole world revolves around winning and losing, being strong or being weak. And what the movie is telling the American audience, and this is in, you know, while the war is still going on, life is a lot more complicated than that. And you judge a society not simply by how strong it is, 
but how it takes care of the weak. It's just a fabulous movie. I also couldn't help but wonder, though, as I was reading it, the degree to which Faulkner could have a degree of distance from his uh, Hollywood contributions and be okay with the changes and the alterations to it, because he was still producing his own fiction at the same time. And that was yes. much more of of his preserve and and where he could really do what he wanted to do without having to worry about inputs from script doctors or, or studio executives yes. or or product or uh, production code people. You make a very good point. In Hollywood, Faulkner's ego was never at stake. He accepted it for what it is. I'm going to do the best I can within the system. I have to tell you, this has never occurred to me before, but it occurs to me now in this interview. You know, when a biographer writes a book, it is in a sense about the biographer, obviously, the person writing the book, as much as it is about the book. But the biographer in the book can't talk about that. What I mean by that is no one wants to read a biography of William Faulkner and learn about my autobiography. (laughs) They're going to get upset. They're going to say, I I don't care about Carl Rollison. But for the purposes of the interview, what I want to say is, while I was writing those things about Faulkner, I think in the back of my mind, it just occurs to me now, for years I was an academic administrator. And I was a writer while I was, because like Faulkner, I had, you know, I had to pay the bills. You know, I, I wasn't going to Hollywood to be a screenwriter, but being an academic was almost like a role, an acting part for me, and my ego wasn't at stake. Well, people marveled at the way I was an administrator because for me, nothing was at stake. In other words, I wasn't afraid to make any decision because I was worried about, you know, well, if I'm a dean now, am I going to be a provost? And how am I going to be a president if I alienate or I don't do something? You know, it just, I was remarkably effective as an administrator <laughs> because people people knew, you know, when I said something, I, I really meant it. It's not because I had some other kind of agenda. Well, Faulkner was the same way. He would go into a script conference and he would just listen. He wouldn't say anything, you know, and then they would turn to him finally because they wanted input from all the writers. And in about two or three sentences, he said, well, this is what you got to do. And they would all look at each other after an hour conversation and realize this man had absorbed everything and had just made a wonderful suggestion. The producer, Jerry Wald, was often called up Faulkner, even when Faulkner wasn't under contract, and said, Bill, I got this script, and I'm not sure how to fix this scene. What should I do? And invariably, Faulkner said, well, I think you should do this, this, and that. It, was, it wasn't his Faulkner's dialogue that was valuable to directors. It was his sense of structure and form. And whether you're writing a novel or you're putting together a movie, you have to be, you have to be concerned with those, those same principles. As you explained, though, he also brought something else, which was this growing literary prestige. And I'm thinking here about when uh, Jack Warner gets him under contract for, you know, what yeah. is an astonishingly paltry sum, uh, 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 considering, and, and about how he goes around bragging about how he's got, you know, the, the, the greatest writer in the world, you know, and he's able to pay him for peanuts, which, you know, given yeah. that Jack Warner was yeah. a famously cheap man, was probably, you know, as, as much of a selling point, if not more so. That's right. Writers were making two, three thousand dollars a week. And Faulkner, who had this goes back to Meta Carpenter, she waited and waited and waited for him, wanted to marry him. And of course, he was married and had this family back in Mississippi. Uh, and he, he just couldn't bring himself to to uh, to divorce his wife. And there were lots of connections with his 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 wife, Estelle, that he did not want to break. 
Um, and so she married someone else. Well, this just broke his heart. And he went on this bender. He went on this drinking bout uh, and got such a bad reputation that when he was, you know, when he needed money in the late 30s, early 40s, no one would hire him in Hollywood until finally Jack Warner said, well, for $300 a week, you can come. Well, $300 to a movie uh, mogul was, you know, was nothing. It was a tenth of what he would pay someone at Faulkner's prestige. But Faulkner took it because he needed the money that badly. Well, you also have this interesting uh, examination of Faulkner with regard to the uh, Second World War. And I, I, you've already mentioned uh, that he was working in Hollywood during the war. But I, I was, I was yeah. fascinated as well by how you have Faulkner, who, a, pers- uh, a man who had uh, tried to serve in World War I, who was in effect uh, you know, forestalled by the end of the war uh, coming when it did. Now the Second World War comes and you have a, a person who was eager to serve uh, for a variety of reasons, and yet he didn't have that opportunity. Everyone around him, it seemed, was engaged with the war. Uh, they were serving. He had members of his family serving. And yet he is forced to uh, sit out the war out of uniform. But as you explained, the war nonetheless has an impact upon his work, not just his Hollywood contributions, but his uh, literary fiction as well. Yes, that's right. He, he really, um, uh, he's in Hollywood. Uh, he's in his 40s. He's hes really too old, but he does try to get various uh, jobs and even enlist uh, in, in the Navy, for example, but it, nothing works out. Uh, he can't do that. He's, he's uh, working on several scripts that relate to the war, uh, but out of these scripts really emerges uh, and this is, again, where the literary critics weren't thinking of it in this way. When you get to a novel like Intruder in the Dust, which is set in, in Mississippi, uh, it's, it was actually filmed in his hometown of Oxford, Mississippi. In fact, Turner Classic Movies is showing Intruder in the Dust this month. Uh, Clarence Brown, a Southerner, made the movie, and Faulkner did not write the script, but he advised on it and was there to watch the, the filming and to, to offer his advice. That one of the things that Faulkner begins to think about as he's writing his his fiction and it and it shows an intruder and does is he, he realizes that he never realized before the whole world is watching the United States you know as it comes out of the war it's it's the triumphant power it's the victory of democracy how can you now in the South uh, perpetuate things like uh, segregation. I mean, Harry Truman desegregates the armed forces. In one of his screenplays, Battle Cry, Faulkner has a uh, what they call then a Negro character, a black character, an African American, who he names America in a very deliberate uh, sort of point of integrating the African American experience uh, into the American experience. Uh, and that's what happens in Intruder in the Dust, essentially, is this Lucas Beecham, this this uh, a loner African-American character who's accused of killing a white man and is in jail uh, with the help of a young white boy uh, who he's befriended uh, and the lawyer Gavin Stevens. It, it eventually, the, the crime, is. It, it turns out, is as it often is in these cases, one family member has killed another. And they're trying to cover it up by blaming a black man. 
that novel, Intruder in the Dust, uh, it made Faulkner a bestseller. Uh, he got out of debt uh, with the $50,000 he was given for the rights to, to film the, film it. And he suddenly found this, and this is two years before the Nobel Prize, he suddenly found himself a kind of public spokesman for the South, which was a role that as a writer he had never sought and never thought he would have to inhabit. But with Intruder in the Dust, he's beginning to make himself into that kind of writer. Uh, you mentioned how he, you know, makes that this is a very uh, successful novel, and yet the success of that novel is preceded by another work, your examination of which I, I thought was yes. really interesting, and that is the Portable Faulkner, because it, as you presented, it really is a pivotal work in terms of the reception of Faulkner and the and the perception of Faulkner. I was wondering if you could explain the the origins of the Portable Faulkner, sure, and 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 how it came to be so influential. Sure. Um, Faulkner's working in Hollywood on uh, a number of scripts, and the uh, Malcolm Colley, a distinguished critic, uh, he'd written for the New Republic, uh, New York Times Book Review, uh, all of the famous publications. He had written a book called Exile's Return about the, the American writers in, in Paris and Europe in the 1920s. Very, very important figure. And he he had interviewed he had reviewed Faulkner rather he didn't know Faulkner at all and he just wrote to him out of the blue he had done a portable Hemingway and he said essentially to Faulkner you know it's it's your turn for a portable you know um, many of your books are out of print you're well regarded among the literati but the the public hasn't really uh, discovered you uh, and here you have this body of work these these stories and novels about Yaknapatawpha County, uh, Mississippi, and I want to put them together in a kind of anthology. And Faulkner is very receptive. Somewhere in the back of his mind, he told Kali, you know, he had one day thought he would sit down and write a kind of almost chronicle, uh, setting the, the whole history of his county and, and state. Uh, but he had never gotten around to it um, and Kali starts assembling and starts writing to Faulkner now, when is this story set and should this Indian story come before or after this other story? And it really gets Faulkner to thinking and he gets into, as he had never done with any critic, you know, the, the shape and the structure of his works. And uh, Kali proceeds. And at the end, Faulkner is absolutely thrilled. He, you know, he writes to... Uh, to Kali is a kind of uh, uh, wonderful, um, almost impresario of his work. Uh, and uh, the book is published. It gets a lot of attention from important writers like a Southern writer, Caroline Gordon, who is quite well known at the time. She writes in the New York Times Book Review. Um, Robert Penn Warren, the very distinguished Southern writer, uh, you know, um, almost around that time, his you know his great novel, All the King's Men, is published, uh, and he's a, you know he's a wonderful. He was then and still is a wonderful authority on Faulkner, and he starts writing about the portable Faulkner, and that really uh, Random House comes out with a with a uh, modern library edition of 
the Sound, the Fury, and as I lie, uh, as I lay dying, those two books together. And then what happens is you get the paperback revolution. You get these signet paperbacks with several of his novels suddenly going into print, and you can walk into a drugstore and uh, find one of these cheap paperbacks. You might be reading Mickey Spillane or, or uh, <clears throat> Rex Stout or one of these other uh, detective writers, but you're also going to see on the rack William Faulkner. Uh, and I think to a large extent, the particle Faulkner is what got people going on him uh, and saw that, you know, you could you could read a Faulkner novel, but you could also read these stories. Yeah, he was accessible in a number of ways that I think people had not really realized. And in that sense, Malcolm Colley really uh, restarted Faulkner's career. You describe how by the time you get to the late 1940s, this fame is being reflected by the fact that people keep showing up at his house and, and wanting to uh, speak with him or they uh, keep, you know, he, he's becoming more of a celebrity figure. And there's this one point you mentioned that you even had these two men from Sweden showing up and, and, and Faulkner's, you know, <laughs> commenting about that. And yet, as you point out, that actually is reflecting another uh, uh, development that's taking place that culminates in this career triumph of him receiving the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1950. How does that come about? That comes about because, uh, especially uh, during the war and after the war, uh, a series of European writers, especially the French, especially Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert, uh, Albert Camus, uh, become very interested in Faulkner's work. Um, uh, Sartre writes about The Sound and the Fury, and Camus writes about the novel uh, uh, The Pylon, about uh, aviators. Uh, and both of them see Faulkner as speaking in some ways to their existentialist creed, although Faulkner never considered himself an existentialist per se. The kinds of struggles that his characters um, go through and Faulkner's sense of time particularly interests these philosophers and novelists. And they really are the ones who champion his work. And there are others like these Swedes who show up. In fact, one of the Swedes tells Faulkner, uh, you know, one day you're going to win the Nobel Prize. Uh, and that's a good uh, two, three years before he does win the prize. So Faulkner has, has some sense, and he's got a wonderful French translator, Maurice Quandreau, who's also telling him about, you know, the avid interest in Faulkner in the early 20s and mid-20s, and then, and then later it's spent some time in France. And so he's very well aware of his reputation. But I don't think Faulkner would have won the Nobel without really the, the intense interest in translation of him into other languages, particularly into French, but the Germans and the Italians. He had wonderful Italian publishers, too. They're the ones who really get behind him to such an extent that when Faulkner wins the Nobel Prize, the New York Times is surprised because they're <laughs> kind of stuck. The, the editorial board, they're kind of stuck in this notion that Faulkner is somehow just this author of Southern decadence and his characters are weird and extreme and he deals with idiots and sex perverts and so on. And there's so much more to Faulkner than that. Uh, but he, he has been reduced sometimes to those stereotypes. 
I imagine it must have been something along the lines of when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize and people were like, Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> exactly. They don't they don't really understand what's going on. And that that again goes back to what I'm trying to do in, in, to show people that Faulkner that you can think of him as this modernist or this elitist writers or someone hears the word Faulkner and they say, Oh, he's very difficult. Listen, this is a man who not only wrote for Hollywood, he wrote for the Saturday Evening Post. You know, he, he wrote for all kinds of uh, uh, publications um, and uh, is, is very much integral, uh, even today, to the, the culture we live in. How does winning the Nobel Prize uh, alter Faulkner's life? Because you've already talked about how he has this growing awareness of race relations and America's image. Does the Nobel yes. Prize, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, alter that in, in any way? Does it uh, accelerate in any way? What, what does it do for Faulkner's place in the world? Yeah, it is an acceleration because simply by virtue of being a Nobel Prize winner, he's going to have journalists and microphones thrust at him and uh, asking for him for his comments about uh, uh, very, you know, there were various cases in the South. Uh, lynching was almost a thing of the past, but it was there were still these these outbreaks of violence and so on, and certainly, you know, fierce defenders of segregation. He was a supporter of the Supreme Court decision. <clears throat> he had a good friend who was dean of the law school at Ole Miss at the University of Mississippi, and this dean had been telling him for several years, it's just a matter of time, Bill. It's just a matter of time before <clears throat> a decision like Brown versus Board of Education will come. Uh, and so you've got to be prepared. Uh, and Faulkner believed in integration. Uh, he was conservative. Uh, he certainly, uh, he was no activist. He wanted integration to go slowly, and he was heavily criticized for that. But he knew where things were happening. And what's really interesting is that there was a writer, a poet, named Muna Lee, L-E-E, and she wrote to him, and she asked him if he might be interested in doing a state department tour. You know, they were sending writers abroad as kind of goodwill ambassadors. And he le he leapt at it. Uh, he knew her work. He respected her. He wasn't a good public speaker. He would, did better in question and answer sessions and in press conferences. Uh, and he did it. It was very, very hard for him. Uh, but he, he really considered it his patriotic duty to tell the rest of the world what was best about America without ever uh, denying its faults. Uh, and without ever, uh, when he was in Japan, for example, he was certainly critical of the American government, even though he was, in a sense, working on the government's dime. Uh, he, he really, and one of the things he said to his fellow Southerners, this is when we're getting into the mid-1950s, is he, again, he essentially told them, uh, the world is watching. And, you know, most of the world is not white. Uh, and you have to learn how to live in what is a fast-changing uh, world of color. Uh, and it's going to leave you behind. It's going to leave you irrelevant if you don't do that. He was very uh, far-seeing in that respect. And, uh, and what's interesting about that, uh, to go back to an earlier novel, Absalom, Absalom, uh, published in 1936, readers of Faulkner know this famous uh, sentence at the end of the novel when this tortured Southerner, Quentin Compson, his Canadian roommate at Harvard, says, why do you hate the South? 
And Quentin says, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Uh, and it's about his obsession with the past and his inability to understand what has happened to his culture and why it lost the Civil War and so on. And then Shreve, this Canadian, who's kind of absorbed the Southern history, says to him, and it, it, must, it must have puzzled many readers in 1936, Shreve says, I who regard you now will have descended from the loins of African kings. He's talking about thousands of years from now. And I think what Faulkner meant was we're going to be get, we're going to be get used to what used to be called miscegenation. We're going to get used to this race mixing. Uh, it's it's going to be a different world eventually. In this obsession with the purity of blood, which again is a fascist trope, really a fascist idea that you have to keep your blood pure. And Faulkner was saying, and he, he said this outside of the fiction, too, that at some point, the very issue of race, it won't happen now and it won't happen tomorrow, but someday it will be regarded as a kind of irrelevancy, you know, and our genes will be mixed and this won't be an issue. He has that position, but you also talk about the tension that existed in his own life. His own brother, John, was uh, <clears throat> was, was a very staunch defender of segregation and an opponent of of, uh, of uh, school integration. You also described that. That's right. I, I also thought it was fascinating was when you were talking about his reaction to the Emmett Till lynching and about yes. how... Well, he, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Faulkner did not live as a revolutionary, even though he knew things were going to change. And even though he, for instance, he funded the college education of African-Americans and he loved African-American people. In fact, in 1918, when he made his first trip north, he looked around and, you know, where, where you know, what he would call, he would call uh, Negroes. And sometimes it's not, you know, he would use the N word, you know, people get really upset when you do that now, especially if you're a white person. But for him, it, it, it came naturally. And yet he loved these people. But he lived in a culture. He had family servants who were African-Americans. He had this kind of patriarchal view of things. If you read some of his comments outside of his fiction about race relations, they sound very condescending. Um, he was a man of his time in that sense. His fiction puts him out of time and, and out of his own age. But yet, yes, he had to live with his brother, John. His mother was a, was a fierce segregationist. His whole family really was. He didn't talk about with them, about it with them. I think he probably felt it was useless, um, even though his mother read what he wrote. Um, so he was, in that sense, stuck in his own time and occasionally would make these comments, you know, his solidarity with his fellow Southerners, which made him sound like a reactionary. And yet his, his better angel, so to speak, his better self, which you see in the fiction more clearly than anywhere else, he knew that the South as it was and the life as he lived, it was doomed. I thought that tension really came out best in that anecdote you have earlier in the book about uh, when one of the uh, long time servants of, of the Faulkner family died and how Faulkner <laughs> has the uh, funeral and the service in his house. And at, the, at first yeah. thought, you, 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 it, you, it comes across as, well, this is a very nice gesture. And then as you explained, though, the, you, the, that paternalism is, is very much apparent and, and, the, and the sense that, that many members of, of her family had that, in effect, Faulkner was, was, was taking it away from them by, by making this, this very paternalistic gesture. Yes, that's right. And if you read earlier Faulkner biographies, you know, he's sort of, uh, the implication is he's sort of praised for going out of his way to uh, 
uh, hold the funeral in his home, a memorial for this black woman who had, had served his family so well and had brought him up as a young boy and so on. And it sounds like a wonderful story. And it is a wonderful story. But from her family's point of view, there here was this white man who was even in, in the, the black woman's death was taking over. Uh, and uh, none of the biographers of Faulkner, all of whom are white, uh, saw that point of view. In fact, that comes from a Faulkner scholar, Judith Sensabar, who wrote a book called Faulkner and Love. And uh, she actually, it wasn't her, she actually hired an African-American woman to interview members of Caroline Barr. This is the woman who had died, who had served the Faulkner family. This African-American woman interviewed other African-Americans because they wouldn't talk, they wouldn't level with the white biographer. Uh, and so we get this fascinating look into, you know, a part of the world that, that was, in a sense, shielded even from William Faulkner himself. During his uh, later years, he became a writer-in-residence in, in Virginia, and, 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 at the, uh, and this uh, has an impact upon his uh, later, his final years, and also the, the legacy of his uh of his uh, literary archive. How, how does he become a writer in residence, especially given that, as you described, he, he's not a person who's, who's comfortable in front of audiences. He's not really comfortable, uh, you know, being that type of, of he, he's not comfortable discussing his work. Why does he undertake that position in Virginia? And, and how does it sort of reflect where he's going with his literature? Yeah, it's a very interesting story. Um, he, uh, he had gone to a literary conference in 1931 in Charlottesville and had just made a, a mess. He had gotten drunk and threw up on uh, the uh, dress of a prominent writer, Ellen Tate's wife's dress and so on, and he just hadn't done well at all and was never uh, one to, to haunt universities. He never even finished high school, spent as a special student a year at Ole Miss, but hadn't gotten anywhere and, and had not much to do with academic life at all. But his wife, uh, not his wife, sorry, his daughter marries a West Pointer who settles in Charlottesville, Virginia. And uh, she has two children, grandchildren, and Faulkner now uh, heading toward his 60s um, uh, wants to spend more time with her and his grandchildren. So Charlottesville, University of Virginia is a pull. The other thing is, that uh, he's changed as a writer. He's not the writer he was in 1931, where he felt he didn't need anybody. He's a Nobel Prize winner. And Virginia, in a Southerner, especially a Faulkner's generation, Virginia is number one. It is the Southern state. I mean, when the South secedes, uh, it, secession doesn't work uh, until Virginia secedes, South Carolina, and then other states, and then finally Virginia. So Virginia was always the one to lead the way. It's where Robert E. Lee comes from. Um, so there was that, too. Uh, and then there was the notion of legacy. What Faulkner did like to do, on an informal basis, he loved children. Uh, my biography, both times, is full of, and his stories are full of children, who often are, in a sense, the wisest ones, out of the mouths of babes, you might say. Uh, and so here's an opportunity. Uh, he's not going to teach classes. 
he's going to give uh, some public lectures, but they're essentially readings from his work and a little explanation about the backgrounds of his stories. He's going to sit in classes and he's going to take questions. This was eventually published as Faulkner in the university. And by the way, you can go to the University of Virginia website and listen to Faulkner. And it makes a difference whether you read the transcript or you listen to him because he's very funny and that humor isn't, doesn't always come out in the transcripts. So he's passing on uh, what he knows to a new generation, and he's also getting a certain energy out of it. And the other thing he does is he's religious about um, office hours. Anyone, any student can come in uh, and sit down and talk to him, whether they're a writing student or just a student who wants to talk to William Faulkner. Uh, He's a figure on campus. He walks around. Uh, A student stops and gives him a lift who doesn't know he's William Faulkner. And uh, Faulkner just looks like this southern gentleman in a white suit. And uh, when they get to the destination in Charlottesville, Faulkner says, uh, will you be around next week? I'll need a ride next week. And in the meantime, the student finds out from friends that the, the old guy he gave the ride to is William Faulkner. And so the next week, the student shows up in his car, and Faulkner gets in, and the student is profusely apologetic. He says, "Oh, Mr. Faulkner, you know, I'm I'm so um, I'm so sorry. I didn't know it was you. Uh, I didn't know your name." And Faulkner looks at me, and he said, "Well, that's all right. I didn't know your name either." <laughs> so I mean, he was very approachable. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just loved him at Virginia. It was fun for him. The uh, the uh, two faculty members, Fred Gwynn and Joseph Blotner, were World War II vets. Faulkner loved that. He loved, you know, uh, just sort of shooting the breeze in the office with them and talking about the war. Uh, and the impact you see uh, in his fiction, particularly in the last two volumes of the Snopes trilogy, The Town and the Mansion, which are filled not only with his thoughts about young people, but his, uh, for instance, his allusions to Marilyn Monroe, to the Spanish Civil War. Uh, there are sentences in the town, in the mansion. Uh, if you look at the, the first volume, The Hamlet, or if you look at anything before, say, uh, 1957, uh, there are sentences in those last two Snopes volumes that couldn't have been written earlier, not because of the chronology, but because of Faulkner's sense of world world history, the context in which the story happens. Uh, Linda Snopes comes home in the, in the mansion after having served in the Spanish Civil War. Well, events like that never got into Faulkner's earlier fiction. So he's bringing the world into his Yaknapatafa fiction, into this region in a way that he's never done before. And at this point, he's traveled to Japan, he's traveled all over Europe, he's gone to South America, he has a huge following in South America, he's been in Venezuela, uh, he, he, uh, he's a really, uh, I think it's hard to conceive today, I can't think of a writer today who would have that kind of stature. Certainly writers go on um, State Department junkets and go to other countries, uh, but, you know, Faulkner was just mobbed when he went to Japan in 1955 because uh, the Japanese were, 
were already reading him and they had seminars about him and so on. And a book was published of his interviews in Japan and so on. The writer doesn't have the same place in the culture today. I can't think of anyone who could who could fit that role. So part of what the biography does is show what kind of world that was and also Faulkner's emergence into the public, which which brings us into into the 1960s. He dies in 1962. It begins to to um, show us the world that's beginning, because when he's a writer in residence in 1957, you know, before, say, the year 1950, there weren't any writers in residence. That wasn't a thing in American colleges. Now it's taken for granted that you have a writer in residence or writers who are in the English department faculty. Even after the Nobel Prize, the president of the University of Virginia was really wary. He wasn't sure he wanted someone like William Faulkner on his campus. Was that possibly because of Faulkner's reputation? Because as you describe uh, in the, the final, your final chapters, he he's undergoing a very marked political uh, public deterioration. Uh, I shouldn't say public, but uh, a personal deterioration. You you describe that he, the effects of his drinking are really starting to take a toll on him. Yeah, yeah. There there are those periods. So the president certainly didn't want the university to be embarrassed. And and Faulkner, by the way, never did embarrass the university. There are no episodes of public drunkenness in in Charlottesville at all. Um, There was nothing like that. But he had been publicly drunk in 1931 because he didn't care uh, what people people thought of him. But but he had a very different position when he came in, of course, the president wouldn't know that. President of the University of Virginia wouldn't know that. But Faulkner, in that sense, was a very different man. Still a drinker, absolutely. Uh, but but uh, he was a curious alcoholic. He he could control it. He could go for long periods without drinking. And the, the idea that he drank and wrote is is well, you just you couldn't. If you read his work, there's just no way. And he often said, you know, no, you know, the drinking came after. He wrote when he had this tremendous sense of hollowness and emptiness. But in Virginia, it was a much more sociable life. He was more sociable in Charlottesville than he ever was in Oxford. I mean, he belonged to a hunt club. He went out to hunt foxes. Uh, you know, he had hunting clothes. He he had uh, he was in the upper echelon of society. Uh, anyone who knew him in 1931 would never have predicted where he ended up in Virginia in the 1950s. He bought a house. He bought a farm. And yet I was struck by how when he gets that invitation from the White House in 1961 yeah. to do the, the, the Nobel uh, laureate dinner that, that, the, that uh, the candies were arranging, he, how he begged off of that. Was, was that because there, there was maybe a, a certain restraint or was it just a reflection of the fact that he, he was really, you know, on his last legs by that point. I don't think it was that. I think it was um, Kennedy had just been elected. He was quite young. Um, I should say Faulkner was a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat. All his family were Democrats. His wife was a Republican. Uh, and so they never talked politics, he said, because they would get into a lot of trouble if they did that. <laughs> he voted for Adley Stevenson, for example. Although even though all of his traveling was under President Eisenhower because Eisenhower was president, Faulkner was going to do his service. Um, no, I think that I think I think Faulkner distrusted Kennedy in the sense that 
yes, it was a dinner for Nobel Prize winners, but it was, I don't think Faulkner liked the idea of being a showpiece, of being shown off as being part of somebody else's political agenda. I think he rather uh, disliked that idea. And it certainly was uh, fixed up well enough to uh, to turn down such an invitation. Mm. And yet when the invitation came to speak at West Point, oh, there was no question. His, son, his son-in-law was a, a West Point graduate, and, and he just, this was only a couple months before he died, uh, his he had really, in many ways, his, his marriage had been repaired. It looked, it, he thought he was going to live to 100, even though all the males in his family died in their 60s. And even though he had all this problem with alcohol, uh, he was a much mellower man when you get into 61, 62. And uh, I think felt that that he, he would he would endure and prevail for quite a bit longer. Well, you've completed this, you know, uh, magnificent two-volume biography of Faulkner. Uh, what's up next for you? I can't let Faulkner go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 um, right now, I'm working on a book of essays about him because as much as you would think I wrote in two volumes, there wouldn't be anything else. I've realized, for instance, his novel, A Fable, which many people consider to be a failure, he set out to write a masterpiece. It took him longer to write than any other book. He worked on it almost 10 years. Uh, I've become very interested in it because of his treatment of crowds uh, in a fable. It's set in World War One, And there's, there's, a, you know, there's a, another Nobel Prize uh, figure, uh, Elias Canetti, who wrote a famous book about crowds, Crowds in Power. And I see such parallels. And one of the things that Faulkner seems to be saying in a fable is sometimes you do have to go out in the street that, yes, there are mobs and there's violence. But sometimes when a society's institutions are beginning to fail, the people do have to go out on the street and and declare uh, what's right. Um, Well, that's really interesting because most interpretations of a fable don't see that. Uh, see what he's doing in that treatment of crowds. Anyway, I'm 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 working on on things like that. That I think Faulkner's a great writer. Uh, he's going to continue to be written about. I don't think this is the last biography, although maybe it's the last biography for quite some time. The other thing I'm doing is a project called William Faulkner Day by Day, which is just what it sounds like. Trying to figure out what he did on every day of his life. Why would I do that? Partly it's for scholars. But partly, I did a similar book called Marilyn Monroe Day by Day. Partly it's because when you write a biography, believe it or not, even with two volumes, you leave things out. And if it's a good biography or a good book of any kind, if it's a narrative, by virtue of its being a narrative, it it puts you in a certain direction. And that means you're going to leave certain things out. Well, now I've gotten interested in what did I leave out (laughs) and why should people know this? So if you read, you know, all these different dates, as many dates as I can find, uh, you're going to get yet another sense of the man uh, than you could from just reading a conventional biography. 
Those both sound like excellent projects. Uh, best of luck with them. Thank you. Carl Rollison, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. It was really a pleasure, Mark. Thank you again.